Welcome to episode 29 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast to Calvary's Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan. Uh, we took last week off, you may or may not have noticed, because we it was our third or fourth week in the Psalms, and the Psalms are great, we love the Psalms. Uh, we could have probably gotten together and talked about the Psalms mm-hmm. for another hour, but we just figured you know, four weeks in a row, the utility to you all of another <laughs> conversation maybe was not, you know, very great. And since it was also a holiday week, we just figured we'd take it off. But we're back now, and we have left the Psalms behind. I think there might be one or two stray ones yet to come. but And so we can dive right in. Okay. Well, for our readings for next week, we'll be reading from Second Chronicles chapter 32, Second Kings chapters 18 to 20, Also, we'll be reading Micah, chapters 2 through the end of the book in chapter 7. And then there's various passages from Isaiah from 18 through 39. The Kings and Chronicles and some of the Isaiah readings cover the story of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, threatening Judah, and King Hezekiah becoming his vassal. We read about how Yahweh protects his people by killing a number of the Assyrians, Though kings, along with Isaiah, paint the picture a little differently than Chronicles, and Sennacherib leaves and is killed shortly thereafter. Then we hear about the end of Hezekiah's reign and life, about his illness and temporary reprieve, and the promise of Yahweh that disaster will come, but not until after Hezekiah is gone. The Isaiah readings come from what is sometimes called First Isaiah, which is most commonly seen as the first 39 chapters of the book. In these chapters, we read mostly similar themes to what we find in Micah and many of the other minor prophets as well. Judgment is coming for God's people because of their faithlessness. In Isaiah, in particular, the faithlessness is attached to the alliances that they are creating with other nations. But then also, along with judgment, we find a promise of future restoration. Isaiah in particular, and this is true all through the book, paints beautifully these passages that speak about the future Yahweh will bring for his people. The book of Micah is, in many ways, very typical of the Minor Prophets. We don't know a great deal about him, other than that he's from a small town about 20 miles from Jerusalem. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, and he preaches both God's judgment on Israel because of their sin and his promise of future restoration. Like Amos, Micah has a strong emphasis on the need for justice and mercy to be traits that characterize Yahweh's people. Something interesting in Micah is we begin to see in him the promise of a Messiah, Now, this isn't the first time we hear about the Messiah in the Old Testament, but if I'm not mistaken, Micah is the very first place we encounter him primarily as a shepherd king. The promise being made that the Messiah will be a king like David, who will guide and nurture and protect his people and free them from their oppressors. So the Second Kings readings have a couple of interesting things. Aside from the number of soldiers we're told were killed um, by the angel Um, the Assyrian soldiers, both in Kings and in Isaiah, is 185,000. That is not a literal number. It just, it can't be. And so we suspect that this is either um, a number that's increased to show the bigness of the event or a, a description of units of some kind. And so in Chronicles, we hear that the commanders are killed, but in, in Kings and Isaiah, we hear that the soldiers themselves are What we can know for sure is we're being told an angel of Yahweh went and decimated the the Assyrian army. What exactly that looked like, I don't think we're given details for, and I think that's okay. 
What's interesting about this whole encounter of Sennacherib coming to Hezekiah and Hezekiah trying to give him gifts to to get him to leave him alone is some is that our we have several historical sources that all agree. This is one of those times when the Bible is um, backed up by corroborated by our historical historical resources. The Assyrian histories actually paint a picture of this discussion or this negotiation with Hezekiah that the demand from Sennacherib was much higher and Hezekiah sent more than just riches. He also sent people and, and things like that. It, I think one resource actually says that his daughters were part of the, mm-hmm. the deal. We don't have anything like that in the Bible. That may not be the case. But what we do see is just this really neat time when our historical records line up with what the Bible is saying. Do the Assyrians acknowledge the loss of their army at Jerusalem? No, except that the Assyrian conquest under Sennacherib is a big expansion. And then all of a sudden... It, it just stops at it Judah. It stops and it <laughs> prepare. We begin a process of implosion among the Assyrian Empire. There is a hmm. report of warfare that pulls Sennacherib away from Judah. And one of the... I mean, that is that is the Assyrian excuse Mm-hmm. But that would mean that those battles went extremely well for the the invaders. And we're still a hundred years or more from Babylon rising up and 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 taking Assyria and, down. Because Sennacherib is assassinated by yeah, his sons. Pretty too. much when he gets home. Yeah. And so you, that, you know, would incline one to think that things must have been going badly, uh-huh. you know, for that kind of instability to be happening. Yes. It is a really neat moment in the historical record. Yeah. Another thing that's really, one of the things that's interesting about Assyria is they maintained a much bigger empire than they should have been able to. And we've referenced this before, but they had this practice of like psychological warfare that they would use. And we actually see some of that happening in our passages Mm -hmm. today with the way that they speak in the language of the people and are, are trying to blame Hezekiah for the invasion. That was a typical tactic of the Assyrians. And they would basically be a, hey, we're here for you. It's your terrible king that's put you in this position. Mm-hmm. We're on your side. Help us out and we'll uh, we'll make things go well for you. Of course, that was not true, but that is the, the common tactic that was used. Also, the Assyrians were known for if you had any kind of rebellion against them, then their response was over the top to try to discourage future rebellions. So they with a relatively small army, maintained a very big empire because everyone was really afraid of them. And they had just conquered the northern kingdom, mm-hmm. or just finished conquering that and taking at least most of their upper echelons into exile to the winds. I mean, that's kind yeah. of the, the understanding is that the, the ten northern tribes are, I mean quote-unquote lost you know mm-hmm. the lost i mean they they pop up throughout the rest of the the biblical story as right. you know in individuals mm-hmm. that there are there are people from these other tribes but for the most part they're taken away they're and they're and they're gone and the assyrians move other people into in. the northern regions which is brilliant and awful <laughs> which then mix with the surviving uh israelite populations to produce who we will come to know as samaritans, samaritans. yeah and so i think that's just a the roots of that Mm-hmm. Of kind of the Southerners' hatred and revilement of the the people who lived in the North that we see in Jesus's day, you know, a lot with the with uh, persecution or not persecution. What's the word I'm looking for? Prejudice against the Samaritans. I mean, it has very centuries of kind of historical background. You know, mm-hmm. coming back to when the Assyrians conquered the Northern Kingdom. 
Yeah. Another interesting tie-in with history, as we know it, is um, Hezekiah's canal that he builds to make water from the, is it the Gihon Valley, all the way to the Pool of Siloam. Mm-hmm. And that's in Second Chronicles 32. This is Hezekiah preparing for invasion. There's actually archaeological evidence as well of like a thickening of Israel's walls during this time. But he does this to secure their water source. And what's neat is that that tunnel is still there today. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, Lord willing, it's something that you and I will be able to see when we go to Israel, which will be amazing to stand in a, in a structure made and described in the Bible. Like that, that will be, that will be tremendous. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's interesting about this time is we see Hezekiah trying to make political maneuverings here. He's in this position where Yahweh is upset with the alliances that Hezekiah is trying to make. But I think that we can understand his dilemma. I mean, he is a, he's a king and he is involved in politics and alliances are things that kings have to do on a regular basis. And these, these powers around him are all so much bigger than mm-hmm. him. And so he's not, he's, he's doing what Yahweh doesn't want him to do, but we should be careful about how harshly we judge him for that. Because it would be just a very difficult thing not to accept help from Egypt to fight off Assyria or to become a vassal of Assyria. And these are all moves that Hezekiah tries to make, and none of them work well. In fact, the only thing that works is the angel of death going through the Assyrian camp. Have the Babylonians over and then show them all the stuff that they could potentially steal from you. (laughs) That was a bad move. Yeah. (laughs) But there's this point at the end of, of Hezekiah's life where he's ill. And he asks for healing. And he's told basically he's going to be healed and given 15 extra years. So he talks about himself being struck down in his prime, basically, and he asks for more time. And this is one of those times where we see Yahweh heal. But the healing isn't permanent. You know, everyone who's healed in the New Testament by Jesus eventually falls ill again, right? The, the, the healing of, of Yahweh is not a permanent thing in this body. But it's just a story that um, I connect with a lot because we pray for people who are ill a lot. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is true just by experience is that most of the time God does not get rid of the illness Mm -hmm. if the illness is a fatal one. But it does happen. And this is a story in the Bible where we see exactly that. The healing comes, but it is temporary. You think of cancer going into remission and then coming back. This is um, this is Hezekiah's situation, and I don't know. I just connect with that. It is a very real life kind of story. Growing up, I feel like the general thought was is that Hezekiah did wrongly by wanting more life, or that it was sort of a a Trojan horse blessing that, like, oh, he got fifteen years of more life, but they didn't go great. Like the Babylonians started to pressure them, and mm-hmm. like you know, these other things happened. Do you have any any read on that, or have you heard that sentiment? I've not heard that sentiment before, but, I mean, we do see at the end of Hezekiah's 15 years, you know, he's hearing about all the bad things that are going to come, even for his, like, in his children's lifetime. Mm-hmm. And he's glad that they're not coming in his lifetime. <laughs> coming in his lifetime. And that yeah. strikes me weird. That strikes me like a person who is has has taken their eye off of the ball a little bit as mm-hmm. far as... But, but that but the pressure of Yahweh's judgment coming has been over Hezekiah's entire reign. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Hezekiah's righteousness and repentance has only ever been met with a promise of a temporary restraining of God's judgment. The judgment was still coming. The storm was still on its way. Yahweh was just going to hold it back for a little while. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I don't know. I'm tempted to say that Hezekiah's pers- like priorities are weird for him to be so glad at the end of his life it's not going to be in his lifetime. But at the same time, I think from the beginning, that's been the best he was he, he could right. hope for. That was kind of the pattern that had been mm-hmm. established. Well, and I wonder too, and, and we're, uh, you know, getting more into the prophets now, uh, just in the reading plan in general. And so we'll probably have many opportunities to kind of talk about this of like the, you know, that we, <laughs> we read Yahweh's threats as like being absolute. This will happen no matter what, you know, and I think that in some ways they are... That's how we should read his promises, <laughs> but I think his threats are far less mm, solid. I don't know quite what the right word word wordage there is, but that they are they are intended to change their behavior, and then the thing is held off. You know, and you mm-hmm. referenced this already, and we'll see this happen with Josiah, the last righteous king of Judah. You know, so I think the question then hanging in the air is: Could they have kept holding it off? <laughs> you know, if they had continued to have righteous kings. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the answer is probably yes, but I think that also they were never going to have an uninterrupted chain of, of righteous kings until, mm. you know, the, the true and final heir of David uh, arrived on the scene. And, and then rather than pushing the, the punishment or the wrath off on his descendants, he took it upon himself. Yeah, yeah. it's hard, right? And one of the things we see here is that when you say they were never going to have a series of righteous kings... Being born into the royal family does not seem to um, lend one towards <laughs> yes. easy holiness. Power and privilege from a young age seem to uh, mess Corrupt. people up pretty bad. <laughs> and that's never outright stated in these books, but I feel like well, that story have to is, bro- is born yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Except we, for Jonathan, although I suppose he was probably... How old was Jonathan king? when Saul became king? We don't really know that, do we? I don't think so. Yeah, I because hmm. he seems like he is a, he was a pretty good guy, even yes. though he his dad was the king. But if he didn't become king until Jonathan was you know fifteen or sixteen years old, I don't know. No idea. Yeah, just interesting to think about. And so yeah, looking at our chapters from Isaiah, I think the first question I have is just based off something you said in your summary. So you referenced something called First Isaiah, uh, but I mean our. The biblical book is just a single, it's not split up into volumes. So could you uh, explain what you meant by that? So Isaiah has a couple of ways it has often been seen. There are some pretty clear movements in the book, like changes in tone and even language, um, the way that it's written in the Hebrew. And some people think that means that there are two or even three authors of the book of Isaiah. So Um, that would be the first like 39 chapters are written by one person and then chapters 40 through 56 or 50, 56, I think are kind of seen as perhaps a second. And then some people think a third one comes for the rest of the book. Some other people break it up differently. They think that maybe the first, um, five or six chapters are written by one person and then we get, we get differences throughout. I don't think we need to see it that way. Um, I think mostly that happens because of a lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. People see a change in the way Isaiah is writing and assume that means it is a different person. 
But it could just as easily be that if you looked at a sermon of mine from a decade ago and a sermon of mine today, you would find changes in vocabulary and tone that might lead a person to think they're a different, different author. Also, sometimes the prophets would use help in the writing process. Mm -hmm. And so they would give an idea and a person would write the idea down instead of a verbatim expression, an idea for idea. And it could be that Isaiah was writing at one point and then he had what's called an amanuensis, this person who would write down his, his thoughts, a scribe, at another point. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why this could all be the ministry of one person. However... If there are multiple Isaiahs or multiple people taking the name of Isaiah writing these prophecies, that does not remove the fact that it is God's word and that we believe that it is true. It's That would not have been outside of the realm of acceptability at this time. Well, as we've referenced many times, you know, that, that we are coming from an individualistic culture, you know, where for the most part, our books are written by a single person, mm -hmm. although that's also itself not actually ever true no. since there's editors and all these other people but that they're credited to one person and so we think of that person as being the author and so then we read that back into the bible which was a collectivist you know coming from a collectivist cultural uh uh posture and so that you know everything was a a group effort you know and sure certainly there were primary you know figures like moses or isaiah or whoever who were primarily responsible or who oversaw the process or, you know, perhaps with some of the prophets, they kind of established a, uh, almost like a style, like an Isaiah style or a Jeremiah style. And then their students could kind of carry that on. And that, like you said, none of that negates that being the inspired word of God. My understanding of the first and second Isaiah and everything was that that was, yes, there's language shifts, but that, that in large part, a lot of that thinking was stimulated by the fact that later on in Isaiah, he starts talking very specifically uh -huh. about historical figures mm -hmm. who didn't exist yet or who weren't known. Like by name. Right, like Cyrus. Like Cyrus. And that then our, our friends, the Bible scholars, were like, well, then that can't possibly have been Isaiah because people can't actually know the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so... Lack of imagination. Well, and from a, again, from the literary perspective, sure, there were probably other people involved. But I think, yeah, just knowing that, that the uh, a lot of that started just because, again, the, the failure of imagination, failure of nerve, <laughs> you know, that this thing can't possibly be what it, you know, what it's uh, presenting itself to be. So these first couple of chapters that we're reading in Isaiah are these prophecies against the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was last episode, we talked a little bit about divine wrath and mm. just what that was. And I kind of gave my version of that answer. <laughs> so I thought this was a good opportunity for you to give your version of that answer, you know, coming from these chapters in Isaiah, it's like, all right, what is the point? Like why, as much as we're able to understand, you know, but like, why would God have put these prophecies in the mouth of his prophet to... I mean, he's because who's standing there listening to this Israelites, <laughs> you know, so like, would they have ever actually have gotten to these other countries? Like what just what what's the point? What is the point of these these prophecies against these countries? And then what does that help us understand? Does that shed any light on what, you know, I don't want to say what's what God's wrath is because it's not separate from him or, or it's not like a substance, but just help us understand God's wrathful response to sinfulness. Yeah. Wow. 
I was not expecting this question. Um, it's a big one. So when we see another nation besides Israel or Judah being prophesied against in the prophets or events being interpreted by the prophets as Yahweh's wrath upon another nation, I think that a couple of things are happening. First, we worship a God who loves justice, who is justice, or is just, um, who is righteousness incarnate. And it bothers him when there are people who are offending against his character, even if they are not in explicit covenant with him, as are Judah, Israel, his people. It's almost as though, and there's some hints of this later on in the New Testament, there is an implied covenant with all people, that there are things that people know to be wrong. Now, what's interesting about this is it doesn't actually appear that he goes after another nation just because it worships other gods. It's always, is I, that's a big word, and so if I'm wrong about that, then I will be wrong about that. I'll say almost always in regards to their behavior towards those weaker than themselves. So if they are harming others, whether it's God's people or even just others, Yahweh is, is very bothered by that. And there are times that that causes a response. Now, I imagine that things like this happen outside of the, the area of the Bible's focus. But we're reading these stories because these are nations that are known to Yahweh's people. Their assurances to Yahweh's people about his sovereignty, his presence, and his care for what is happening in the world around them. And they are ways to remind Yahweh's people about how Yahweh feels about these kinds of injustices as a way of encouraging them to live in accordance to the covenant they've made with Yahweh. So is are the Egyptians ever going to hear Isaiah's prophecy against Egypt? I mean, if Yahweh decided to make a way for that to happen, the answer is yes. I mean, we see from the story of Jonah that he's capable of making that happen. We don't have that recorded. Is this beneficial for Yahweh's people? I think so in a couple of ways. One, it's an assurance of judgment coming on those who have harmed them in the past or at other times are harming them in the present or will harm them in the future. But also, it's a, it's a reminder to them that they're, I mean, to use a, a common phrase today, that God is in control, that he is present in these events, and he is at work to bring about justice in the midst of the lack of justice. The problem with that for a modern thinker especially is it's not universal, right? It's not, we don't see that justice played out as instantly as we would like, as poetically as we would like, as universally as we would like, as long as we're talking about it being applied to other people. We certainly don't want that applied to us. But it really does seem to me as though Yahweh's wrath is poured out on those that offend against his creation with injustice. And so that would, I think, be our point of disagreement is from what you said last week, as I understood it, that that wrath was only something, and I might be overstating what you said, was primarily something that was revealed against his covenant people. And I, I agreed with what you said, aside from the limiting of it to his covenant people. I think it's also then applied to others. Sure. And I think that, I mean, these, these prophecies are a good example of this, that his wrath is known to his people, 
towards the other nations, but like it's Israel getting the prophecy, you know, about what's about to happen to Moab or what's about to happen to, to whomever. And I think as well that we see, and it's this isn't universally true for these early prophecies in Isaiah, but many of them seem to point towards that the goal of these, these uh, not just mishaps, but these disasters being decreed for these other nations is not, it doesn't end with punishment and destruction. Like there is a, there's a redemption on the far mm-hmm. side of it. And so I think that, because as I reflected on what I said two weeks ago about <laughs> God's wrath, I think that what I was trying to dig into or what I was trying to get to there is that God's wrath, God is wrathful because he loves yes. people. God is wrathful because he is in covenant with his people. And so he's wrathful about their sin. He's also wrathful about other people's sin and destruction, whether that directly affects, you know, that the covenant people are not. And so I think that, that, that what that can tell us is, is that punishment, even destruction is not necessarily the end. It's not the end goal of God's wrath. Right. Um, His wrath is for the purpose of redemption. Right. And how that works out specifically, I think, is beyond any of our reckoning, you know, or how that even, you know, because back then they thought in terms of groups of people and families and nations. And so it doesn't seem like they were as concerned and, and, and you can push back against this, but like it doesn't seem like they were as concerned about individuals standings before God, at, at least at this point, but rather that as an individual belonged to the group, what is the group standing, you know, before God. And so of course those things, you know, I mean, that's, um, I guess we could say that they thought about, they did think about their individual standing, but they thought about it through their belonging to a group. Whereas we struggle with that mightily, uh, AKA people don't go to church anymore. But, um, and so anyway, so just to say all that, 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 yeah, that God's wrath is, is worked out in history and it, and it, 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 it is his response, certainly, to evil and wrongdoing and injustice. But the point of it is to redeem, is to heal, is to is to get things back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, and that again, even the 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 threat of these things hanging over, you know, because a couple of these prophecies, it actually gives very specific time frames. Sixteen is not in our readings, but it says it's about Moab. And it says, within three years, mm-hmm. as a servant bound by con- contract would count them. And then one that is in our readings, I think it's, where are we here? 21, a prophecy against Arabia. Uh, within one year, <laughs> you know, these things, disaster will come upon them. It's like, well, did that happen? I mean, I don't know. We'd have to go. It'd be, it's very hard to pin things down <laughs> to specific years <laughs> that far back in the past. But maybe they didn't because maybe something changed. Yeah. You know, and it's not God's, <laughs> uh, let me say it like this. God's wrath doesn't have to happen. Let me mm-hmm. put it like that. Yes. And even when it does, he is trying to rectify things towards redemption and towards uh, healing. Yes. And kind of uh, shifting a little bit, I also wanted to, and, and yeah, it's just... So we're reading biblical prophecy. We've talked a little bit about that over the last couple weeks, about what that means, what that is. How are we to read these things now? Or like, what is the the benefits or what are the, just what is it, what is it, what do you feel like or what do you discern the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in us or speak in us through 
reading these prophecies now. Yeah. Thousands of years after much of it has either been fulfilled or, or whatever else. So what I don't think is that we're supposed to mine these for details about the future. Mm -hmm. I think that is a mistake that a lot of Christians make when they read the prophets, is that they read them primarily looking for future predictions and using that as sort of a guidepost to see if we're living in the end times. I would say, sadly, that that is, among evangelicals, perhaps the primary use of prophecy or or purpose of reading prophecy. And I think that that is just terribly mistaken. What I think is happening when I read Micah, when I read Isaiah, when I read Amos, when I read these prophets, I'm being, I think a lot of things are happening, but one of them is I'm being shown what God's priorities for his people are. Hmm. And some of them are obvious to us. We don't need to be reminded that God cares about our fidelity to him, Mm -hmm. our allegiance to him. That's that's easy, I think, for us to remember. Now, we may be bad at living it out. but right. I, We don't need to be intellectually reminded, but we certainly need to be yes. effective or emotionally reminded. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that I think about in our current time, it is easy for us to get wrapped up in certain parts of the Christian life and allow other parts of the Christian life to become a lower priority. And one of the things that we see happening in the church today is this sort of split between an emphasis on justice and an emphasis on holiness. Um, Different Christian movements, different churches tend to primarily focus on one at the expense of the other. And I think one of the things we see in the prophets is that God actually cares a whole lot about both of them. And whichever whichever you, dear listener, find, if if you investigate in your heart, you will probably find that one of these rings uh, more importantly to you, holiness or justice. It may it, it is likely to come very easy and, and an emphasis that it just makes total sense as to why that's the more important of the two. I don't know that the prophets allow us to get away with that. Um, mm. and, and so each of us can be reminded, convicted, encouraged, to care about the things that we do not have as easy of a time caring about. In conservative circles, which Calvary is more a part of, the emphasis tends to be on holiness more than it is on justice. We we are easily led into the idea that what really matters is the person's spiritual life and eternity. And so matters of justice in this world become secondary or a far secondary importance. Now, of course, it matters more that a person is in the covenant than that they have lunch today, right? Or have food today. That does matter more in a big picture sense. But our our God does not allow us to focus on the world to come at the expense of the world that we're in now. He calls us to, to live and cultivate the world we're in now to try and create a picture of the world to come, to bring that world into the present so that that both have to be a focus. The justice and righteousness that characterizes God's kingdom needs to be a part of our focus and emphasis now because the world to come is so important. We're bringing part of it here. We're not making it come sooner. We're not changing God's plans that way. We're not. Go- God isn't going to bring about heaven because of our hard work. That None of that's true. 
but both things are supposed to be heart focuses. And I just, as I read the prophets, man, that hits me often. The easy disregard for people for the justice that is necessary for those that are less um, privileged than they are, that are more marginalized than they are, that are weaker than they are, that are poorer than they are. And when I think about Americans, especially American Christians, the wealth that we live in the midst of, it is heartrending to think how easy it is for many of us to drive past people in need and not feel a burden to help. And I think that Isaiah would have a lot of the things that he has to say, well, not Isaiah so much, maybe Micah, would have a lot of the things that he has to say to us because of that. Well, you know, I think that I think that the picture that the, the prophets paint for us is that a righteous person treats others righteously. Sure. You know, and so that if you're not treating others righteously, you're not righteous, you know. Uh, and I think that that's what we see in the ministry of Jesus and what he's trying, especially with the Jewish leaders, like the corner that he he urges them to turn in their minds is that you cannot, because I... I as you were talking, like the, I think the the caricature maybe of churches who lean more towards holiness would be that it's okay to mistreat people as long as we follow the rules, or that if people get mistreated because we're following the rules, well, that's just too bad. Children in cages, too bad. They shouldn't have crossed the border. Whereas the other churches that lean more towards justice would say it's okay to break the rules to help people, you know. And so it's like, okay, so we're helping these people, and maybe we're enabling their drug addiction, but we're helping them. <laughs> You know, and so, and again, those are just two, you know, two examples. And it's like, both of those are wrong, you know, <laughs> but I think that, yeah, that, that the Bible, the prophets are, are urging us towards a, a synthesis of those two things of like that, that true, you know, we see this in the book of James, right? True religion is helping and giving relief to the widow and the orphan. And so it's like whatever good fuzzy feelings you have and keeping oneself and from keep, being polluted. Yes, and keeping oneself from being polluted. You know, so those things are, but I think that in many ways those two, those are two sides of really the same idea, you know, mm-hmm. that, so you're not polluted by helping those who need help, you know, and I think that sometimes we can fall prey to those sorts of ideas of like, you know, or that we have to somehow be separate, you know, that, that we read holiness as being separate from, certainly we need to be separate from wrongdoing, you know, and things like that, but that we need to almost be like physically separated from the people that yeah, we're helping. That's wrong. You know, it's like, well, they stay over there, you know, where they're at and we'll go over there to help them when we want, you know, but, and I think that we, I mean, I struggle with this in my own life as well, of like how... In our cultural position, we will help people. And I think in our church family, people, you know, if somebody has a need or something else, like people will show up to help them, you know, and that's a good thing. But like there is, there are limits on duration. So like we'll help you, but then you need to get your, your stuff figured out, you know, so that we don't need to help you anymore. Or we'll only help you so many times, you know, and if you keep needing help, well, <laughs> or... That there, I mean, there is truly like a distancing. There's a physical distancing, you know, of we won't, we we don't want to give up so much of our life that it's painful in order to help you, you know. And again, I I say this to myself too, of like, yeah, there are there are limits about like, yeah, just like what I'm willing to do with my time or even just my physical space of like, yeah, anyway, and so or money, you know, or just any of that. And so I I think that and and. 
you know, it's, I'm not saying that there's like clear cut answers and if only we would just, you know, but just that it, there is a, there's a struggle there. And, and I think that again, kind of talking about what we were talking about a few minutes ago of why read these prophecies, you know, I think that you're absolutely right that, that they are, they are setting in us the Lord's priorities. And in some way, you know, so the Psalms are, you know, we are joining previous faithful people in communicating to God. And then the prophets are giving us God's responses. And I'm not saying that the prophets are like one-to-one, you know, replies to the Psalms, but just kind of the general movement of it, you know, that, that we are, the Psalms are giving us language and room to express what's happening in us. And then the prophets are telling us what's happening in God, more or less, you know, or his, his mind and his, his mindset. I mean, the Psalms are doing that too, but you know, you know what I mean? And so even though these countries or these peoples, I mean, some of them still exist, but many of them are gone, you know, lost to history, you know, whatever else. And that, that perhaps it can, perhaps it can just get a little silly if we try and map those prophecies onto current world events or, or, you know, whatever else, but you know, history runs in patterns. So, I mean, the same things will happen again, you know, with just different, slightly different casts of people. And that again, these things are, are conveying to us, I think the Lord's thinking the Lord's heart, you know, I mean, Isaiah opens that way, come let us reason together, Yahweh says. And so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of value in immense value for God's people in in reading these things and just being formed, not only, you know, in wisdom and um, in our confidence that he controls, you know, the geopolitical arena, but just that the of righteousness, you know, of the holiness and justice, you know, kind of being bound together is, is this one reality. Well, hmm. there's actually a, a chapter, I don't know if in Isaiah that we might want to look at before we move on. That's okay. I was thinking about chapter 24. Um, there's a passage that is just a little unusual for um, for the prophets, and I mean, we see some of these, but we don't see them too often. I'm thinking here in verses, where are we at? Okay, so in chapter twenty-four, verse twenty-one and following, we're reading about the judgment on earth, and nothing may come of this. I just think it might be interesting to look at it and talk about because it it's a little, it's a little different. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be dismayed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. We don't, we get talk about the heavens, especially as being part of judgment, but we don't get that very often. And I just thought it was notable that it's here in a part of Isaiah that I don't think we would have expected to see it. And I'd love to know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I think it seems on one level that it's, it's sort of just the mirror of some of the earlier parts of the chapter where it's talking about, you know, verse four, the earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers, the exalted of the earth languish, Mm -hmm. The earth is defiled by its people, therefore a curse consumes the earth. Uh, and so just that it's this this judgment of this day of the Lord is coming upon the whole of the creation, yes. you know, earth and the heavens. Um, and I think that makes sense. You know, I, th- I think that 
I mean, <laughs> we know from prior discussion and, and just the story of the Bible up to now that, you know, the, the drama of salvation does not only involve humans yeah. and God. And so I think that there's certainly, you know, we don't know much about what is tra- what transpires in the heavenly realm, but I think that that uh, especially for you know ancient people who very much thought that like the heavenly bodies, meaning what you could look up and see at night and the sun, you know, were beings in and of themselves that exerted some kind of control and influence over earthly events. You know, and we know this today as like astrology. You know, just this idea that yeah, that the the heavenly bodies could control fate. Or that they were telling us something, you know, and so the kind of the stars you were born under, you know, kind of mm-hmm. decreed how your life would go and, and, and those sorts of things. And, of course, Genesis does tell us that the heavenly bodies are telling us, and the Psalms also, you know, so this idea that the heavens <laughs> uh-huh. are telling us things is not actually wrong. <laughs> it's just what, what are they, you know, what message are they proclaiming? And it's actually also not true, or it's not not true that the heavenly bodies exert influence on us. They do. We just call it the force of gravity, which is a very <laughs> uh, mundane thought now. But, you know, once upon a time, action at a distance, you know, was a kind of spooky idea. Um, anyway, Spooky action at a distance. <laughs> you know, just that all of that to say, all of that to say, you know, I think that that that's kind of all wrapped up here again, you know, ancient people, uh, they didn't have, a, as far as we can tell, they didn't have a conception of the heavenly bodies as being like what we think of them as, is just physical objects out there floating in space. You know, I mean, they just did, that was just not their, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not their fault. They couldn't fly, fly up there and look, you know, so I mean, it, it was just, it is what it is. And so I think that, yeah, it's just the expression that, that God's justice, uh, God's wrath, God's transformative work, you know, reaches both the heavens and the earth, that nothing nothing is outside of it or nothing escapes it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I also love the slipping into the quantum entanglement definition into, uh, that was, that was fun. You're welcome. That was for our John Norlands out there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So Micah, there is, Micah is this wonderful little book. And like I said before, we don't know much about Micah, but there, there seems to be some things that we can pick up from him. I think he was probably a pretty good preacher because the, the bits of like the, the movements as you're reading, you know, the, the new headings, often that will be either the, the change from one sermon to another sermon or it is, you know, the end of one movement and into another, which is a part of preaching today. And what Micah tends to do is he has these parts at the end of his movements that are just pithy and easy to remember. He he seems like he was very good at word crafting, so that the last thing you heard him say would ring in your head. And I just I just enjoy that about Micah as a preacher. I'm I'm encouraged and humbled by it as well. And then I want to um, I want to draw attention to one of these pithy sort of end quotes that Micah has, because I really do think this is a good summing up of the message of the prophets. If if you had to choose one small set of verses to sort of represent the message of the prophets, this wouldn't be a bad one. So it's Micah chapter six. These are famous verses, verses six to eight. 
With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, it's a call to repentance. It's a reminder that the point has never been following the rules of the sacrifices, that all of this was meant to produce in his people a goodness and a love of justice and mercy and righteousness. And I I don't know. I just, I think Micah was brilliant here. I, I find this pithy and it stays with me and I find it helpful. And that that emphasis on justice and righteousness and mercy and humility is, I think, what the prophets are calling his people to all the way through. Yeah, and I think what Micah would say, and I think what we would be comfortable saying, is if if you're gonna if you're gonna remember a couple of verses like from Micah, these are these are good ones. And he has, I mean, the end of chapter seven has just real pithy comments too about about hope in the Lord and waiting for God. I mean, he's just, he's a brilliant word crafter. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Dude, <laughs> do we need to get you a little flag? Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I was sitting there and I was like, no, this is good stuff. I didn't want to interrupt you. But man alive, that was, I suffered a little bit there. <laughs> that keeps happening. <laughs> Are you allergic to the things I say? Is that no. what's wrong? Would you actually then eat a Bible? No. Oh, what if it's a lot of listeners? No. What about one bite? No. But it's the name of our podcast. Think about how great that would be. It'd be a video. It'd live on. It'd go viral. And like much of the Bible, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> how much of the Bible is a metaphor, Pastor Ben? <laughs> Only those parts which are metaphor. Mm, yes, yes. <laughs> Opinions vary. <laughs>